all the people who have listened to me go on and on about Psalm 32 <laughs> over the last, I don't know how long I've been going on and on, you guys have actually contributed to what I'm going to say today. So anything that's good that's in here, you guys get credit for, and any screw-ups are on me. <laughs> uh, I also want to say thanks to Justin, who I, don't, I still don't know, I cannot remember how long ago, but he said, hey, Josh, we're doing a series on the Psalms, you pick one and talk on it. And I was like, are you kidding, Psalms? <laughs> I'm an engineer, we don't do poetry, right? <laughs> the Psalms are hard. No, just no. That was my that was the first thought in my head. And then there's this little voice in my head and it said, you remember at that one time when you opened up the Psalms and it was Psalm 32, you could you could maybe talk on that. No, 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 no. And then eventually I came around and I said yes. And the problem is that uh, I recently, after I had said yes, looked at the schedule and it's Justin Westcott. Jeff Wall, and then me, and I'm like, are you kidding me? I have to follow Jeff Wall? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, the, that bar has been raised, folks. And, uh, you know, a good en engineer will tell you, when you see a high bar, don't go over it. You avoid that sucker like crazy, and you go around it, right? <laughs> so that's what I'm gonna do today. We're gonna do something completely different. And let's see, if that work? Okay. We're going to talk about Sunday school. And not the Sunday school that I teach most Sundays, but the Sunday school of yesteryear. And many of you here are not as old as me and will have no idea about the word I'm going to say, and that word is flannel graph. No, flannel graph. How many of you, by show of hands, have heard of a flannel graph? Oh, you know, several of you. Oh, good. Well, then you'll recognize this picture. Uh, someone trying to give a Sunday school, uh, tell a Sunday school story with a flannel graph. And a flannel graph was this piece of fabric, and you had these fabric cutouts of people. Yeah, that's not a no, that's what a flannel graph is. It's, and you would tell the story by moving the, the characters around on this piece of fabric. And uh, so, you know, I decided we would play a little game before we get too deep in the woods here with Psalm 32, and play oh, two lies and a truth. So, flannel graphs are ancient, right? And I thought I'd play around with ChatGPT and come up with a couple of definitions and see how it stacks up against my own. So here we go, definition number one, the OG PowerPoint presentation <laughs> of the pre-digital era, where felt cutouts starred in dramatic biblical reenactments. It's like a low-budget Hollywood blockbuster, but with more fuzz and fewer <laughs> explosions. All right. And number two, the ancient art of storytelling through static cling, where the characters magically stick to a fuzzy board and innocent children wonder why it won't work with their socks at home. <laughs> And number three, the technical achievement of the Stone Age. Who needs high-definition screens when you can enjoy the sheer, unpixelated glory of cloth figures stuck to a flimsy board? And your assignment is to decide which of those I wrote and which two 
are the AI. So real quick, show of hands, which is number one? How many go, and we're voting for which one I did. You guys vote number one, okay. How about number two, who votes number two? Okay, couple there. How about number three? Oh, a lot there, okay, yeah. You're all wrong. They were all AI all yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the lie. Uh, but uh, yeah, the, the funny thing like is. What's that? Okay, yeah, that's okay. Uh, those are all great, yeah, those are all great definitions. They're all sarcastic and funny, and we all know engineers don't have a sense of humor, so that's why we use AI to generate it for us. But in all seriousness, years and years ago, what did I learn? from those Sunday school messages on that flannel graph. What did I learn? And many of us in this room, what did we all learn from that flannel graph? Uh, some popular stories might have been Samson, right? He was strong, he defeated the Philistines, right? Jonah, who was swallowed by a fish. Everyone saw that on the flannel graph. That was very popular. Uh, David defeated Goliath. Moses defeated Pharaoh. Solomon, who was wise. These are all characters and stories that we remember from those flannel graph days. And quite frankly, there's still stories that are told just the same way today. And the unsubtle, or the subtle message with all of these stories was, be like them. Um, in order that you can be acceptable to God. Now, I hope that none of you think that today, but I know when I was a kid, that's what I thought. And I think that many of us still feel that way. But what happens when our view of the Bible is informed to do more in order to be acceptable? Well, there are four destinies. We can either end up self-righteous. Hey, I can do more. I know the stuff. I'm good at this. God loves me because of what I do for him. Or we can end up in anxiety. I don't know if I can do this. And, you know, I've been trying really hard, but I'm not sure that I'm doing enough. I'm, I'm, this is me, by the way. Uh, my wife is smiling because she knows it's true. Um, we can end up in complacency. You know, I tried that whole thing. I looked over there. It looks okay. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe that's okay for you. Uh, and there's some good stuff there, but I'm not too worried about being acceptable to God. And finally, we can end up in cynicism. Actually, it's impossible to be acceptable to God. I've tried it, been there, done that. Uh, if God even exists, right? This just doesn't work for me. These are the four possible outcomes of believing this kind of Christianity. Self-righteousness, anxiety, complacency, and cynicism. I don't want that for you guys. Uh, so, I think Psalm 32 actually addresses all of this. All of it. In one small 11-verse psalm. So let me read that real quick. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. 
Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like the horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. I want to look at four things from this psalm. The first is blessing. The psalm starts with a blessing. We'll talk about that in a minute. The second is return. The third is embrace. And then worship or welcome. Yeah, I worked hard on that acronym. <laughs> Let's start with that blessing. God blesses in this psalm by forgiving. He forgives our transgression, which is direct disobedience, our sin, which is missing the mark, not living up to being his image bearers, his ambassadors on the earth, and iniquity. This is corruption, brokenness, crookedness. And the psalm says God forgives all these things, not just willful dis disobedience every part of us that is broken. I think too often we think of sin as outright rebellion, but God is interested in all of us, every part of us that's broken. He's willing to forgive. Yeah. Um, but then there's this other thing in verse 2. It says, in whose spirit there is no deceit. What does that mean? I, I I'm not sure that any of us would say, oh yeah, my, my spirit is free from deceit. And I think the psalmist is talking about hiding. When we hide parts of ourselves from God, when we say, that's, that's too much for you to forgive, I'm going to keep that away from you. That is not blessed. But when we bring that to Him, when we are not hidden, when we don't withhold, when we are whole before Him, he blesses that. And guess what? That is hard. But he blesses that. So my question is, why start this psalm with a blessing? Why start this way? Any thoughts? 
sorry, this is the inner Sunday school teacher coming out, right? Like, you're all my students and you can raise your hands and ask a question or what have you. I know this is a little bit different context, but why start us all this way? And I really think that we need to be assured that God will bless us. If we come before him without withholding any part of us, will he actually bless us? Will he do it? We need to know, we need assurances that he will. And that's why the psalm starts this way. And I want us to hold on to this thought because we're about to go on a little bit of a roller coaster. The next verse, verse three says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Whoa, that doesn't sound like a blessing at all, does it? What's going on here? Um, I think that first part, keeping silent and feeling like we're wasting away is this passive ache of separation. We know there's something in between us here. And there's this ache to be reunited, to be right with one another. And I will use my own relationship with my wife as an example. When there's something between us, there's an ache there. That doesn't belong there. That, that needs to be taken away. And it hurts. It hurts to have that separation between us. Um, and you know what? That's a good thing. If there's something in between holding us apart, that needs to be removed. That needs to be recognized and removed. And I think that is a good thing the psalmist acknowledges. When I kept silent, I felt like I was wasting away. When I let that stay in between us, it did not feel good. That is a good thing not to feel good about separation. But then we have active pressure. It says, day and night your hand was heavy upon me and my strength dried up. That doesn't sound like a blessing either. But what's the alternative? God could just say, you know, you don't want to be with me. I'll just let you go. You go do you. But that's not what he does. He rests his hand on us to guide us gently back to him. always feel good, right? Um, Hebrews 12 says that God disciplines the ones he loves. He loves us. Mm -hmm. And that's why he does that. And that is good news. Um, I have a question here. What is our normal response to rejection? When we have that when we have that thing separating us, when we move far away, when we reject God, what's our normal response there when we are rejected by somebody? Reject them back. We reject them back, that's exactly right. We, disconnection, right? Uh, but that's not what God does. What about when we withhold ourselves, right? That's our response. Well, you're gonna, you're gonna reject me, I'm gonna withhold myself. That doesn't feel good either. 
So our normal response to rejection and separation and those things that go in between us is distance, more distance and more distance. But God doesn't want distance between us. He wants to be with us. He loves us. All right, let's talk about returning to God. If his hand is heavy upon us to guide us back to him, what can we expect if we return? Well, we kind of already talked about that at the beginning, but I think the psalmist reiterates that here. In verse five, in verse five, uh, it says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And there's a pause there. Selah. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. We're supposed to dwell on that and really think and ponder that. That's what he does. And we might say, oh, well, that's a great way to end the song. We come to God. Check. We give him all of ourselves, check, and he forgives, check, all done, no more song. We can just put away the rest of these notes and go home. But of course there's more. Um, he goes on, he says, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And I like the NIV version, it says songs. We'll talk about each of these three lines, and I know the text is a little bit small, but we'll get there. Um, so that first one, that hiding place, we kind of had this idea, okay, we're going to go to God, and he's going to protect his investment of us, right? This is a financial transaction, right? And he's going to provide passive protection, a way to hide from trouble. Great. Transactional. Wonderful. And actually, that's good. And then active protection. It says, you preserve me from trouble. That's active. And then there's this last line. You surround me with shouts or songs of deliverance. What do we do with that? What is that? How is that, how's that transactional? What's going on here? What does it mean for God to sing songs over me of deliverance and to delight in my return and to delight in my salvation? What does that mean? That is not transactional, my friends. That is relational. That is loving. <coughs> to be surrounded with those songs. The reason that I picked this song was this line, because when I read it about 20 years ago, I broke down. Because up until that point, my, my thought about how this relationship with God worked was transactional. You do this, you behave this way, and I'll bless you. And suddenly, this was different. This God isn't interested in the transaction of my salvation. This is God who sings songs over me. 
is why I'm talking to you about this song today. Um, I think there is a very good example of this in the Bible. We have another story that sounds a lot like this song. One of a son returning to his father. in Luke chapter 15. And in this story, you may know it as the parable of the prodigal son. A young man tells his father, you know, I'm done with you. Give me my inheritance and I'm going to go away. And the father says, okay. The son goes away. He squanders everything. And he's left destitute. And in Luke 15, 18, says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. <clears throat> that sounds familiar. And then later, in 1520, it says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran. And he embraced him. that surrounding with love, songs of deliverance. What does the Father say over him? Let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost in his family, and they began to celebrate. When we return to God, when we come before him with all of ourselves, this is what we can expect. Mm. In verse 10, it says, Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. <clears throat> and I wanted to make sure I had this right, because whenever I see steadfast love or loyal love, there's a very specific Jewish word <coughs> that we translate that way. And so I looked it up. And in the Orthodox Jewish Bible, it says, He that trusteth in Hashem, the name, the Lord. Chesed shall envelop and cover him. That's verse 10. And that word chesed, you really got a chesed, right? Is a very important word and one that we do not have good English translations for. And the closest one that I've found is one that Justin loves so much. Jesus story. In this Jesus Storybook Bible, it says, it is the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's Sally Lloyd-Jones, for those of you who are gonna look that up, I hope. That kind of love, that intimate bondedness, is the thing that God surrounds us with. That never letting go love, John 10. I think, I wonder, and maybe you are wondering, what will someone who loves me that way do? What will they do when they love me that way? Um, I think we don't have very much experience with this. 
This is a kind of love that we don't even have good translations for. So how are we going to have experience with it in our day-to-day -day life? Um, we might even think it would be scary to be loved so deeply. But the radical message of the Bible is that God loves us like this. Right now, as we are, all of us. And the sadness of the Bible is none of us can return that love really and truly. And the conflict in the Bible then is what does an all-powerful being do when the object of his love rejects him? What does he do? What would we do? I think that's a problem because what we come up with, the first thing that comes into my head is really not loving. What would we do when the object of our love rejects us? What does God do? God does something very unexpected and I think very unhuman. He humbles himself. He makes himself our servant. He lives the kind of life we're supposed to live and dies the death we deserve all to be with us so that we can return to him so that his forgiveness of us is assured I think it's very easy for us living where we do, in the time that we do, to look at the New Testament and say, oh yeah, that, that makes total sense. And I think it's surprising for us to see that all the way back in the Psalms, before Jesus. And I want us to consider the difference. Oh, remember, Samson was strong, right? But actually, he was deeply flawed and careless. And Jonah, yeah, he was swallowed by a fish, but he was stubborn and disobedient and racist. Yeah, David defeated Goliath, but he was envious and bloodthirsty, too, and selfish. And Moses defeated Pharaoh, just like they said in the flannel graph, but he was also an impatient murderer. And yeah, Solomon was wise, kind of, but he was also an idolater. And he did some stuff that was not very wise. Wait a second. If the flannel graph is true, I'm confused. Aren't I supposed to be like these people? Um, so what do we do with that? Well, the truth is, we shouldn't do these things that these people did to be acceptable God loved them in spite of that. All of them. The difference is not doing the things so that we can be acceptable to God. The difference is accepting his love and bringing all of us to him. All of our heart. All of our brokenness. Because he loves us. My belief is that chesed, that all
all-consuming, unbreakable love that God has for us is the thing that animates the Christian walk. It is the fuel for us when we are rooted in an understanding of how deeply God loves us. We have a different idea of what God desires. Yeah, he desires obedience, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say, hey, go do whatever you want. But he desires us first. He loves us, and he desires obedience because that's good for us. And when you love someone, you want things that are good for them. We have a new understanding of our judgment, our judgment of ourselves in particular. We know deep down there's something broken there. But God still loves that. He loves us despite our brokenness. And I think we have a different ability to act in love towards others when we have a deep understanding of how much God loves us and desires to sing those songs of deliverance over us. Um, and I think we can see each of these things exemplified in Jesus. Jesus had a deep understanding of God's desire for his people. So deep, in fact, that he submitted to God's desire to save humanity. And instead of saying, I, I don't want this, or he did say, I don't want this, I don't want your plan, but I'll submit to it because your judgment is better than mine. And then he did, he went to the cross, he acted out of love. I have a ton of notes all over this page. Um, and I think what I wanna say is, right now, we live in a throwaway culture. We do not live in a way that says, I have chesed for you. And no matter what you do, I will never stop loving you. Um, as I was reading and preparing for this, I often thought about Rochelle, my wife, because I think she actually models this well for me. Um, there have been many times where something very wrong, and I'm sorry. And she does not have a throwaway mindset. She has grace for me and loves me through that, and I am deeply blessed by her because of that. And just like Jesus did for all of humanity, I would like, I think, our understanding of God's unbreakable love for us should inform how we are with each other. And in fact, I would argue that the very reason that I have confidence to stand up here today is because I am part of this community. Mm. and have confidence that no matter how badly I mess up or might mess up, you guys love me. Mm -hmm. That is what the church should look like. And I think as much as our culture does not see that in the church, they are justified to be cynical. says in Hebrews 12 2, Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. He did that for our behalf. He 
I said, abundant love. And I think we are abundant love for people who don't deserve it. And we are so interested, so invested in our own righteousness, in our own acceptability before God, that we sacrifice his greater mercy and his amazing love for us at the altar of our idolatrous justification. We want to justify ourselves. We want to make ourselves good enough for God. And instead of accomplishing that, as we know we never can, we reduce his mercy. So now what? Now what? We know that God loves us this way. And the psalm ends by saying, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So what do we do? What do we do with this information? Yeah, woohoo! We celebrate. <laughs> Absolutely. God loves celebration. I think people think we sing songs to God because he needs it for some reason, right? No, singing songs is a right response to understanding how much he loves us. In fact, I would argue he has already sung songs over us, those songs of deliverance. And our songs to him are an, are an echo of that. God, thank you for loving me deeply and providing a way for my deliverance. Just like the story of the prodigal son, God welcomes us. He welcomes us. He welcomes us like sons and daughters returned from the dead. Um, my hope is that you have reason to celebrate because of this message. My hope is that you have a deep understanding, and maybe it's just starting like it was for me 20 years ago, my hope is that you have a deep understanding of the unbreakable, unshakable love that God has for each of you, for all of us. Um, and I want to invite you to two opportunities to celebrate. First is a little bit later in the day at my place, right? We're going to have some fun at the barbecue there. And the second is at the table. The communion table is a small taste of a feast that God is preparing for us for when he returns. It is a way to remember what Christ did for us, that chesed love that he has for us, and it is an opportunity to celebrate that love for us. We aren't, I, I so often approach the table in a solemn way, and I think there is reason to be solemn about what Jesus did for us but we can also approach in a celebratory way and shout for joy at what he has done for us because of his great love for us. Um, so, yes, please come to the table um, and celebrate that God desires to be reunited to all his children.